0: I I was also tempted to talk about that dialogue between Mary and Joseph or Mary and Jesus because uh, what's happening there it's it's easy to see as kind of rivalry like there's something going against one another but it's actually kind of playful banter Um, but instead I, I kind of want to go in another direction because the wedding feast of Cana is actually part of the epiphany the epiphany is three events it starts with the magi coming from the east seeing the child Jesus It's the baptism, and then it's the wedding feast of Cana. And what the epiphany means is it's trying to show us something. If you notice at the very end of the gospel, it says this was the first of his signs. So there are signs. Well, if there's a sign, what is it pointing to? What am I supposed to see? That's what signs do. And I think in order to to figure out what the sign's pointing to, we need to put this gospel reading back into the context of the whole account, right? And so let's see where this gospel is in context of the whole. You see, before this, John the Baptist had said to his own disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. And so they leave him in order to follow this Jesus. Now many of us hear lamb and we start to think, Oh, it's because Jesus is so gentle. And uh, there's something to that. But no first century Jew would, would, would hear Lamb of God and, for, and not remember the Exodus event. He would think back to that moment in time where the lamb was slain and the blood was put on the door and the angel of death passed over. And then they would eat the flesh of the lamb and that would give them strength in order they can, they can make their journey to the promised land, to heaven. And what would, they, what would happen is they would be freed from their enemy, the Egyptians. And so here they are hearing, this is the lamb of God. Okay, so he's going to free us from our true enemy, which is sin. And so they want to see what this guy's all about. So what happens after Cana, at the wedding? Jesus goes into the temple of Jerusalem. Okay, the temple, let's remember that. It's the center of their economy. It's the center of their culture. It's the center of their world. It's the center of their religion. This is where all the things are happening. And so he overturns tables. He drives out the powers that be with whips of cords. And he calls it his father's house and says, you've turned it into a house of dens, or den of these, excuse me. So how does he make this move? It's pretty dramatic. So something big must be happening at the wedding feast. So what changes? What does he show us? He shows us his authority. Make no mistake, he shows us who he is. He wants to reveal, that's the sign I'm not some ordinary man. No, I am the son of God. So let's look at the gospel closely. I think if we do this, you'll be able to see that every single detail, and some of them, they seem so superfluous. They're just, they don't seem necessary, but each of those point to something important. It's meant to show us that the sign of Jesus is no accident. It's no fluke. It's no scam. It's not a trick. This happened. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited. Why this detail? Because Jesus is a nobody. And yet he's bringing people who who want to know who he is witness this event in order to tell us who this Jesus is. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing. Why this detail? seems unnecessary but if it's for ceremonial washing there was never wine in these jars before and so it isn't as if he added wine to a jar with wine or he added water to a jar with wine in it already that's a trick then Jesus had the water drawn and taken to the head waiter the head waiter why him you see Jewish weddings are several days long and so if you're if you're organizing a party that long you need at least one person who ain't drunk And so instead, the head waiter commented on the great quality of the wine. So this isn't some watered-down trick. Our Lord changes water into wine. Remember that. He can do this. Remember that during this Eucharistic feast. That when the, during the Eucharistic prayer, when bread and wine become his body and blood, he can do this. He already has. He continues to do so here and now. And then how does the story end? Our Lord so revealed his glory and his disciples began to believe in him so we can believe in him. There's our purpose to the sign. So we can believe in him. Jesus is showing who he is. Make no mistake about it. So why have I gone through all this detail far more than any of us are going to remember? Let's face it. Because it's reasonable to believe in God. It's reasonable. Don't let the world shame you or tell you otherwise. Don't let them call you stupid or silly for believing in God. Faith and reason, faith and reason, somehow have gotten told that we're, they're, they're against each other, but faith and reason point to the same truth, God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It points to God. And yet, they get pitted against each other as if we believe in things with no evidence, as if we believe in things because they sound nice or they make us feel good. No, it is reasonable to believe. There are so many things in our lives that we can't explain with words, that we can't touch, feel, smell, see, taste, things that we can't explain, things that seem unreasonable and require faith. Think about love. Love's unreasonable. It makes no sense why parents love their kids, especially teens. (laughs) I know. When I was a teen, I was a jerk. My dad still tells me. (laughs) Love doesn't make sense. It's inconvenient. It's often... it, It makes us do crazy things. It's risky. Suddenly, I make myself vulnerable to another person... And suddenly this person I care for the most can hurt me the most. They can cut me the deepest. Does that make any sense to us? And yet not a single one of us here would say, no, love's not real. We know it's real. And at the same time, how about the things we believe? We don't believe in silly things like leprechauns. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. But (laughs) but God's not a leprechaun (laughs) because it is reasonable to believe in God. You see, before I joined the seminary, I used to volunteer at my home parish a lot. and My favorite ministry was working with teens. I know I just bashed them, but there was something about watching faith click for them. You know, they'd have a good experience in the confessional. They'd have a well-celebrated liturgy and really enter in. They'd have Eucharistic adoration and just bang. Wait a minute. There's a God who intimately knows me and loves me, who's embracing me. And then everything changes for them. Just like the water changes into wine, they change into something more godlike, more loving. They know that they're loved. And I would watch some of my students talk about it, and they couldn't help but talk about it. And they were like Isaiah in the first reading today that says, I will not be silent. I will not be quiet. Everyone will behold God's glory. And I got to see all this. And I got to pray in thanksgiving for what God had done and how open they were. Suddenly I'm seeing them just grow up a lot. They're realizing how much they're being encouraged and embraced and that's kind of new for them. But then there'd be a problem. They'd be discouraged. Friends at school would ask them, what's so different about you? What happened at the retreat? You're acting so weird. And it's a fair question, I suppose, but My students wouldn't know how to respond. And because they couldn't put what happened to them in word, they couldn't really articulate this experience of God, they thought it was silly and that it needed to be thrown away. And that their faith was silly, it was something to be ashamed of, something to be ridiculed, and it was hard to watch because suddenly this event that was so real for them, they just throw it away and say it never happened and just move on you know what was worse still? When parents did the same. You know, it's just a phase. In two or three weeks, you'll be back to normal. We can't do this. We can't do this to them, and we can't do it to ourselves. As Christians, as disciples of Christ, we need to hold on to every encounter. They're priceless. They're precious. And we rejoice when others do the same. And when these experiences happen, everything changes. How I see myself, how I see others, how I see the world. If God is loved, then suddenly I have to be loving, even when it's hard. We have to hold on to these moments, these real moments, so that everyone will understand that God has called us his delighted, his espoused. You See, it was no accident that today's gospel is a wedding feast. That today's gospel, his first sign, starts with these words, on the third day. Because what else happened on the third day? Our Lord left the tomb, and he married you. He married his church. And so here we are celebrating this marriage. The one that, is, remember the first reading, he rejoices in his marriage. Our creator rejoices in his espoused And so at this altar, our Bridegroom, Jesus, once again turns bread and wine into his very body, blood, soul, and divinity. He's shown us he can do it. He'll do it again. He continues to do it. All so that we can receive that spirit that St. Paul talks about in the second reading. To each individual, the manifestation of the spirit is given for some benefit. Well, what benefit? Who's benefiting? So that others will encounter God through us. When we love, when we forgive, when we are kind, when we're like Jesus, filled with the Spirit, God encounters the world and the world encounters God. And guess what? They'll be confused. When you show a stranger this caring, genuine love, they will not understand. But it'll be such a real moment for the both of you. And somehow you'll grow together in faith and they'll begin to believe just like you believe. It's reasonable to have faith. Hold on to every encounter of God. And if you can't explain it with words, that's okay. It's even better if you can do it with action. We're so, so very blessed that in this celebration, we know we will encounter God. We will hold Jesus in our hands and on our tongues. Hold on to this event of encounter and let it permeate everything about who you are and what you do and change He can do this. If he can change water into wine, he can change us into him. And so enter into this event with your whole self because it is real and it is reasonable. The bridegroom is here and he's waiting for us all. All of us, his espoused, his beloved, his delight.